0: CHAPTER Twelve OF CHARLES SIMEON BY HANDLEY MOLE. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. LETTERS SIMEON'S CORRESPONDENCE WAS NO SMALL PART OF HIS WORK AT CAMBRIDGE. CANON CARUS HAS PRESERVED A LARGE NUMBER OF THE LETTERS IN HIS ADMIRABLE MEMOIR. INDEED, THE SECOND PART OF IT CONSISTS ENTIRELY OF A CAREFUL ARRANGEMENT OF LETTERS, AND I HAVE ALREADY PUT A GOOD MANY EXTRACTS FROM THESE BEFORE THE READER but let me add here a sheaf of specimens from Simeon's letters of counsel. Seldom surely has the post been better used than by him in these silent labours of love and wisdom. To a young clergyman. January, 1792. My dear friend, walk close with God. It is the only way to be either safe or happy. Live retired. Read much, pray much, abound in all offices of love. Shun the company that may draw you aside. Seek the company of those from whom you may receive edification in your soul. Be dying daily to the world. Consider yourself as a soldier that is not to be entangled with the things of this life, in order that you may please him who hath chosen you to be a soldier. Finally, be faithful unto death, and Christ will give thee a crown of life. To the same, a little later, he writes of what he knows. One who did not speak at random has said that he esteemed the reproach of Christ as greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. Such too will you find it, if you can only take up the cross. It is our great aversion to the cross that makes it burdensome. When we have learnt to glory in it, we have found the philosopher's stone." When we are enabled to say with Paul, Most gladly will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. When I say we are like-minded with Paul in this respect, we have learned to explain a more difficult riddle than ever Samson's was. But till we have been taught this lesson, nothing can be done to any good purpose. It is remarkable that our Lord has laid this at the threshold which we must pass in order to follow him one single step. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To a friend who was in trouble with his bishop, a different side of Christian duty is in view here. March 7, 1814. My dear friend, circumstanced as you are, I feel no hesitation in saying that you should avoid everything that can give offence, except the faithful preaching of Christ crucified. Why should you stand out about the hymns? You are very injudicious in this. You should consider that when a storm is raised, you are not the only sufferer. Pray study to maintain peace, though you make some sacrifices for it. I stated that your pamphlet was somewhat objectionable, but if I had not been afraid of wounding your feelings, I should have said very objectionable. You are not aware that, whilst you are afraid of being thought to act from the fear of man, you are actually under its influence, only it is the religious that you fear instead of the irreligious. This, in few words, is my advice. First, preach faithfully, but speak the truth in love. Second, do all the good you can in visiting your parish, but don't exercise any pastoral function out of it. Third, put aside hymns which are quite unnecessary. Fourth, do not attempt to go to the utmost of what the law allows in private meetings. Fifth, be as quiet as possible and let the storm blow over. Observe especially, I do not give this as advice to all persons in all circumstances, but to you in your circumstances. You have given your enemies great advantage against you. You have evidently some very injudicious advisers about you. Be content to let your conduct be misinterpreted for a season." Be as regular as possible in everything, and in a year or two your enemies will be put to silence. Do not be anxious about preaching in other churches and going to prisons. Labor in your own proper sphere as diligently as you will. Above all, do not shift blame from yourself on your patron. If non-parishioners came to the Lord's table, it is not your place to repel them. That belongs to the church wardens. And if they choose to do it under present circumstances, recommend the people not to come. It will all blow over soon. I am much afflicted on your account, and shall feel comforted in an assurance that you will retire to your castle, which is impregnable, and not by injudicious sallies expose yourself to unnecessary difficulties and dangers. I am, dear sir, most affectionately yours. A correspondent had asked his advice about the choice of a college for a younger brother. K.C., November first, 1816. My dear sir, there are many reasons why I should prefer blank for your brother before any other college. He will find there a greater variety of religious characters than elsewhere, and will therefore more easily fall into the habits of those who are prudent, whilst his little singularities will be the less noticed. But if he go about visiting the sick instead of attending to his academical studies, I shall give my voice against him instantly, that he may be removed. And... If he come to the college, he must come with the express understanding that he shall be removed upon the first intimation from the tutor, and not be continued, to be dismissed by authority. If he come without a full determination to conform in all things to college discipline and college studies, or with any idea of acting here as he might in a little country parish, he will do incalculable injury to religion. Pray, let him understand this, and not come at all, if he is not prepared both to submit to authority and to follow friendly advice. A Simeonite undergraduate had been suspected of writing some foolish remarks in a book belonging to his college library, and would not confess it. Simeon's letter is severe, but not too severe. It is a good example of his jealousy for thorough practical consistency in those who professed religion. December 14, 1810. Sir, in your letter to me you say you never wrote such a paragraph to your knowledge. "'You have nothing to do but to write down the same words, "'and you will soon see on a comparison of the handwriting "'whether you wrote it or not. "'It is evident you have been in the habit of writing "'in the books of the college library. "'This, not to speak of the presumption, "'is a most flagrant breach of confidence "'and deserves the most serious reprehension. "'What if every undergraduate took the same liberty? "'If your conduct excited prejudice only against yourself, "'I should think that I had little to do with it "'except in a way of private advice.' but it involves the whole body of religious young men and religion itself together with them, and therefore calls for a public testimony of my disapprobation. You are not at all aware how contrary your conduct in this matter has been to the modesty that becomes a young man, and a religious professor in particular, and I hope you will take occasion from it to mark how exceedingly defective you are in that prime ornament of a Christian character. My advice is that you compare your handwriting with the paragraph in question, in order to refresh your memory, and that, when you have found out the extent of your misconduct, you go to your tutor, and confess it, and humble yourself for it. When you have done that, and obtained forgiveness of your college, I shall be happy to see you again upon the former footing. A lady had asked him a question of conscience about duty to her husband. I will lay down some principles and then suggest how, in my opinion, they should be modified in the application. First, we must serve God faithfully and supremely. Second, we must serve man faithfully but in subordination to God, and so far only as will consist with our duty to God. But firstly, we must take care not to make that sin which is not sin, or that duty which is not duty. The former of these is needless scrupulosity, the latter is superstition. Secondly, we must take care not to make that our duty, which is the duty of others, indeed, but not ours. For instance, as in the state there may be many things amiss, which yet it is not our duty, but the duty of Parliament only to rectify, so there may be in the house of a husband. A wife may advise, but not order, except in her own department. You may lament evil, but not authoritatively oppose it, where God has not invested you with the supreme command." Thirdly, we must distinguish between things evil in themselves and things evil by accident only. It would take me too long to assign all my reasons. Reasons enough will occur to you. If I consider your welfare alone, I should say renounce such vanities altogether, for in your state of mind I doubt not, but that they will have a great tendency to injure your spiritual and eternal interests. But your husband's welfare ought to be most dear both to you and me, and consequently such a line of conduct as is most kind and conciliatory, and likely to win him, is that which I should advise. But if you find him fixed and determined, yield instantly without uttering a word. Let your compliance be kind and affectionate, however opposite it be to your own wishes. Let any differences of opinion between you and your husband be revealed to none without absolute necessity, and be extremely careful whom you consult. It is not every one that is able to advise. It is easy enough to lay down general principles, but to modify them to existing circumstances is extremely difficult. In this consists the difference between a novice and a father, between folly and wisdom, error and truth. He writes to one who had been urged to preach very strongly. December 7, 1817. What is your object? Is it to win souls? If it be, how are you to set about it? by exciting all manner of prejudices and driving people from the church? How did our Lord act? He spake the words in parables, as men were able to hear it. How did St. Paul act? He fed the babes with milk and not with strong meat. As for the religious world, they are as selfish, for the most part, as the ignorant and ungodly. They are not content that you should seek the welfare of others, unless you, to please them, bring forward also things which will utterly subvert your end, and if they be but gratified, they care not who is stumbled and driven away. You must not be in bondage to the religious world any more than to the ungodly. True, you are not to keep back the fundamental doctrines of the gospel, but there are different ways of stating them, and you should adopt that which expresses kindness and love, and not that which indicates an unfeeling harshness. Only speak from love to man, and not from the fear of man, and God will both accept and prosper you. To another on Christian expediency. december tenth eighteen seventeen. My dear friend, I should be cautious of making up my mind strongly on anything that is not clearly defined in Scripture. Nothing is easier than to lay down an apparently good principle and to err in following it, for example the eating of meats offered to idols and circumcision. Do not make bonds for your own feet. Constructed as your mind is, you will be in danger of this. In things that are good or evil per se, there is no room for expediency. In things that are good or evil only by accident, expediency must guide you. Many think that the opposite to right must be wrong, but the opposite to right may be right, as in the instance before specified. The human mind is very fond of fetters and is apt to forge them for itself. This is not, however, recommended by your very affectionate friend and brother in the Lord to a curate who had been requested by his incumbent to leave him. March 18, 1819. I never interfere in the concerns of others unless called to do so by both parties. As an abstract question, I think that for a man professing piety to force himself upon his principle against his will is no very Christian act. There are a set of people in the church who would recommend and encourage such a step, but they are not the most humble and modest of our flock. You must take care what spirit you encourage in others and what spirit you exercise yourself. I am, dear sir, your most faithful servant, C.S. To a missionary on the religion of personal experience. Your letter shows me what I was most anxious to hear, that you are growing in self-knowledge, and it therefore opens to me a fit opportunity of declaring to you what have been my fears respecting you from the beginning. You have always appeared to me to be sincere, but your views of Christianity seemed to be essentially defective. You have always appeared to admire Christianity as a system, but you never seem to have just views of Christianity as a remedy. You never seem to possess self knowledge or to know the evil of your own heart. I never saw in you any deep contrition, much less anything of a tender self loathing and self abhorrence. This always made me jealous over you with a godly jealousy, and never till this moment have I had my fears for your ultimate state removed. I beheld in you somewhat of a childlike simplicity, and I will know that, if it be associated with contrition, it is a virtue of the sublimest quality, but if contrition be wanting, the disposition which assumes that form differs but little from childishness. You may conceive the brazen serpent which Moses erected in the wilderness to have been exquisitely formed, and you may suppose persons to have greatly admired the workmanship and the contrivance of erecting it upon a pole for the benefit of all who should behold it. But the meanest person in the whole camp who had but the most indistinct view of it, if he beheld it with a sense of his own dying condition and with an experience of its efficacy to heal his wounds, would have an incomparably better view of it than the virtuoso however much he might admire it. This hint will show you what in my judgment you were and what I hope you will be. Christianity as a personal matter, not to be commended merely to others but to be experienced in your own soul, And though you may confound your opponents by your arguments, you will never do any essential good, and much less will you reap any saving benefit to your own soul, till you can say, What mine eyes have seen, mine ears have heard, and mine hands have handled of the word of life, that same I declare unto you. To the Honourable H. Ryder, Dean of Wells, on his election to the See of Gloucester, May 1815. You have hitherto seen religion as it exists in a Wilberforce and a Babington, but you will now have to behold it with many sad mixtures of human infirmity. Sometimes it will require a great degree of charity to admit its existence at all, as when it shall appear connected with disingenuousness and duplicity. And where its existence cannot well be doubted, it will often be found to operate to a far less extent than might be reasonably expected. Its effects are very gradual, it does not leaven the whole lump at once, it will not immediately give wisdom to one who is naturally weak, or prudence to one of a sanguine temperament, or meekness to one who is naturally bold and forward. The very circumstances of its operating powerfully on the human mind will frequently occasion it to produce an unfavourable course of action, where the judgment is not sufficiently enlightened to decide between apparently opposite and conflicting duties All this and far more you will now have to see, to feel, to regulate, to correct, and after all your labours you will have little else from man than a comment on that proverb, to which you are already no stranger, Bene facere et male audere regium est. Nor will you be without trials even from some of your dearest friends, for piety is not always attended with discretion, and you may be sometimes urged to things which, though desirable in themselves, are not expedient, and if you will not see with their eyes, they may manifest in a way painful to your feelings, their disappointment and chagrin, and constrain you to seek your comfort in the testimony of your own conscience and in the approbation of your God. To a friend on maintaining charity. In order to form a correct judgment of your spirit, ask yourself what you should think of a person who should speak in the same acrimonious way of you. You would doubtless condemn him for his uncharitableness. You would tell him that, Even if there were some just fault to be found, love would rather cover it, and would hope that the conduct was not so bad as it appeared. Then let this be your own spirit towards others. I do indeed make great allowances for you, for it is not easy for a person, noticed and caressed as you are, to preserve an humble spirit, but humility and love are the chief ornaments of a Christian, And if you decline in these, God will leave you to fall into some dreadful sin and constrain you to learn by bitter experience what you do not learn in a season of prosperity. Write me a word that you take these suggestions kindly and thankfully at my hands. Write me a word that you have spread the matter before the Lord in prayer and that he has discovered to you your error in indulging so uncharitable a spirit. And then I shall bless God that I have taken up my pen to speak, at the risk of being accounted an enemy for telling you the truth, your very affectionate friend. Incidents of his preaching work during his invalid period told in a letter to Thomason. K.C. July 15, 1817. My beloved brother, I see very little company of any kind. I find that silence, perfect silence, is the only thing for me, and by imposing that upon myself at all other times, I go through my public duty with energy and comfort. Last year, during the long vacation, I took the first epistle to the Thessalonians for my subject on Sunday mornings, and through mercy was enabled not only to enter into the spirit of it, but to breathe the spirit of it in my ministrations. But the proud, unsubdued spirit of some of my people could not bear it. Had I scolded them from the pulpit, they could have endured it, but when I wept over them and besought them with many tears, they quite raged and separated from me altogether." But those who were of a humbler spirit were twined closer round my heart. Now the second epistle to the Corinthians comes in its proper order, and I am entering upon it with great delight. The first twelve verses of the second chapter will be my subject next Sunday morning. My soul longs to drink into the spirit of the Apostle, if peradventure I may recover and restore those who yet attend my ministry. At all events I find it sweet to have the testimony of my own conscience that I desire no other office than to be a helper of their joy. I am labouring this point also with all my little might in private, that so I might leave them all without excuse if they return not to me as children to a loving parent. He writes October 1821 to the Reverend J. W. Cunningham on some recent writings of Chalmers, for whom he expresses a warm admiration. I think he carries too far that complaint about government making use of ministers of religion in secular matters. Dr. C. and half a score of others may find it a serious inconvenience. The great mass of ministers, I fear, throughout the United Kingdom would not engage one atom more in spiritual exercises or in ministerial labours if they were to be exempted from all temporal matters to morrow. Still, if some things are overstrained, and who ever rode a favourite hobby without going now and then a little too fast, many things are nobly stated and come with great power to the mind, and I rejoice exceedingly that you are calling the attention of the public to them. Religious people are apt to overlook secular matters instead of giving them a due measure of attention, forgetting that motto, Nihil humani, a me alienum puto." My province is just to attend to the little things that are before me. Were I to attempt to execute Dr. C.'s plans, my folly would soon appear unto all men. I have often thought that, as sapientia prima est stultitia carusia, so secunda est to know quid valiant humeri, quid fere recusent. And, however defective in the first, I have studied carefully, and to pretty good purpose, the second... To the Reverend Edward Elliot of Brighton, just bereaved of his wife. I often think that my mind is very peculiarly constructed in this respect, that the death of those who are dear to me is, in many cases, a real source of joy from the realising view which I have of their happiness. But a few days ago a relation of Mr. Scott was regretting that he was drawing near his closing scene, and so far was I from sympathising with him in his regret that I could not refrain from congratulating the departing saint on his prospects. I say the same in reference to dear P. Yet whilst I say this, I mean not that the feelings of nature should be suppressed, but sanctified and elevated to a heavenly refinement, and I feel assured that such will be the one sentiment that will pervade you all when assembled on the mournful occasion of committing her mortal remains to the tomb. I even now taste the spirit of you all. I seem to be one with you all, I think I understand you all, and you also understand me. I love the gathering into stillness, the sweet sorrow and the adoring joy. To the same, he is referring to Mr. Elliot's grandfather, Henry Venn of Yelling. How far this may be connected with a principle which for more than forty years I have laboured diligently to cultivate, I know not. It has been a favourite object with me, as far as human weakness would admit of it, to love all for my Saviour's sake, and in proportion as I have seen or thought I saw, his image in them. And it may possibly be that the fixedness of this principle in my mind, as it respects my Saviour, has led me into an error in respect to him whom I have ever loved next to my Saviour. Be it so, and if it be a fault, forgive it. But it will take some time, after all, to convince me that the feelings of love and gratitude to a departed saint can be too ardent, or that a thought of exultation, when I find my arm long enough to reach him, is bad. A personal statement. K.C. December 19, 1821. A circumstance has just occurred, and I record it merely to illustrate an idea long familiar to my mind, and brought home to my experience, if not every day, certainly every week of my life, viz. that the servant of God does not live under the same laws as others, and that if he were to act towards others as they do towards him, the world, who are regardless of the treatment he meets with, would be full of indignation against him. The incident is then narrated. "'Perhaps I ought to take some notice of it, "'but my rule is never to hear, or see, or know "'what, if heard, or seen, or known, "'would call for animadversion from me. "'Hence it is that I dwell in peace in the midst of lions. "'My blessed Lord, when he was reviled, reviled not again. "'When he suffered, he threatened not, "'but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. "'That seems the right thing for me to do, "'though some perhaps would think it better for me "'to stand up for my rights.' but to all the accusations that were brought against him our Lord made no reply, insomuch that the governor marvelled greatly. I delight in that record, and God helping me, it is the labour of my life so to act, that on my account also the governor, or spectator, may marvel greatly. My experience all this day has been, and I hope will yet continue to be, a confirmation of that word, Thou wilt hide me in the secret of Thy presence from the strife of tongues." "'insult an angel before the throne, and what would he care about it? "'Just such will be my feeling when I am hid in the secret of my Redeemer's presence. "'To Mrs. Cunningham, 1827, "'I am in the habit of accounting religion as the simplest of all concerns. "'To him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, "'and hath made us kings and priests unto our God, "'to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever.' expresses the very frame of mind in which I wish to both live and die. I have been just interrupted by a clergyman, a fellow of blank college, who has begun to seek after the Lord, and who came to introduce himself to me. I know not what he must think of me with my eyes suffused with tears, but I trust he found my spirit sweetly softened and affectionately solicitous for his welfare. He tells Thomason, 1812, his own thoughts about correspondence. As for sitting down to write a religious letter, it is what I cannot do myself, and what I do not very much admire, unless there be some particular occasion that calls for it. I love rather that a letter be a free and easy communication of such things as are upon the mind, and such as we imagine will interest the person with whom we correspond. Some, indeed, who have a talent for letter-writing may employ their pen profitably in the more direct and formal way, but it is a thing I cannot do. Religion with me is only the salt with which I season the different subjects on which I write, and it is recommended in that view by St. Paul to be used in the whole of our converse with each other. End of chapter 12